Good morning again, everybody. Hope that you enjoyed the weather this week. It was absolutely gorgeous out and got to be outside a little bit and enjoy God's creation. Now, over the last couple of weeks, kind of what we've been talking about in church is kind of discussing a few of the obstacles um, that might come about in our lives as Christians because of culture. Uh, as we continue that conversation with some of these things, I know that some of you are having hardships within culture, within the communities that you find yourselves in. Some of the questions that we've been praying about, um, you know, something that I've been praying about for many of you that I've had discussions with is how to have good boundaries um, in those types of environments where maybe it's hostile, where maybe you're facing some persecution, whether that's in the workplace or in the neighborhoods or in the homes, you know, and some of the things that you face. When you find yourselves in those types of situations, you know, do you, do you leave? Do you find employment elsewhere? How do you wrestle through, is that your mission field? You know, maybe the same thing perhaps for holiday seasons where you're getting together with family for Christmas and Easter and you know that the expression that you're going to face is anything but Christian for those types of holidays. How do you engage in those atmospheres? And what areas do you allow your children to be a part of that environment? Maybe even knowing that they're facing worse things online. You know, so there are definite obstacles and hard questions to ask as we walk through some of these topics, some of these um, attempts as we are trying to advance the kingdom forward. You know, and as we face some of these obstacles and challenges, I'm again continuing to desire that we do this in a gentle and humble way. We've looked at our own spiritual pride and touched on how the effect of the culture can impact the gospel in our life. Last week, we focused on attention and the issue of relevance, settling on how we or the church may not be relevant to people, but God absolutely is, and how that creates a sense of urgency for our need to throw off that spiritual pride uh, in order to bring to God the attention of the people around us. So, there are many ways, obviously, that we can do this as we're living for him. There's many ways as we're going through our weeks that we are f steeped in the culture, where we're impacted by the culture. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure, or I'm sure that how we live our life then creates more obstacles in people's lives because maybe they think that we're judging them or we're being hypocritical or we're thinking that we're better than them for not partaking in what the culture is doing. So there's still a seeking that, that we have as we're pursuing what the Lord would have us do as we face these things within the culture. You know, and, and there's a seeking that the people are doing as well as they're looking for different answers in life. You know, when Christians and churches are following hard after the Lord, I find that there's this attraction about them that can draw people in in order to get those answers. When I think back to my own coming to salvation and understanding of that individually in my own life, um, there was a definite attraction that I had to Elaine's faith. You know, when you think about dating and things like that, there's different types of attractions that happen. Right? It could be looks, it could be personality, but is there also an attraction that's there because of faith? You know, with, e with Elaine, I knew that there was a strength that she had that I wanted to know more about. 
now as we move forward to understand this term of attraction in the context of church and faith, I want to understand it for us as helping non-Christians recognize that they have a problem that needs salvation. Now, like we talked about last week, when we think of some of these terms and we're dealing with culture, it can be a fine line at times. When we talk about attraction, maybe our minds go to worship teams that are more like a rock performance or different things that churches will do to get people into the door. You know, when, when our attraction is focused on that, what happens when that attraction fades? How, how settled is that faith? You know, so we want to understand this term in more, in more in terms of salvation and the need that the people have. The solution that the gospel message brings in terms of dealing with people's sin. As Tim Keller puts it, with our culture today, this is going to involve questioning people's answers even before the more traditional apologetic method of answering people's questions or objections about Christianity. You know, so he's, he's talking about the big questions that people have in life, whether that's moral questions, whether that's, like, uh, that's meaning in life, purpose in life, whether that's freedom, happiness, identity, forgiveness, a hope for the future. You know, people have already formed some answer to these questions, and a lot of times it's based on what they hear in culture. And usually it's held on to loosely because we live in the headline culture where everything is shallow, and they will change their beliefs at the next great thing that attracts them. Right Back to sermon series ago where people are attracted by the shiny things that are around them. You know, even this week I was struggling because... You know, it's, it's Ford Truck Month, so, I mean, I have a truck, but F-250s are looking pretty good. You know, the shiny things that are around that can pull our attention away, that can attract us. And kind of putting some of these topics together that we've been talking about over the last few weeks. If we can get people's attention for the Lord, then at that right opportune time, we can point to the, the unsurpassed greatness of Christ, of God. You know, Christianity has the answers that people are seeking. When you think about the hope that we have in the answers of the Lord that are found in the word, we can help a culture that is struggling because we have answers to the meaning in life that, you know, things like suffering can't take away. We have purpose that's given to us in the Great Commission and the Great Commandments. We have an identity that isn't fragile or based on performance or what the culture is driving, but rather it's centered in the person of Christ. We have a satisfaction that's not based on our circumstances, whether or not I'm happy today, but rather it's a deep contentment that's found in Philippians 4. We have a basis to seek mercy, justice, and forgiveness that doesn't turn us into oppressors or follow the narratives that we might hear in the media or politicians but rather a messaging that comes from the word of God to live our lives based on He, on the way that he dictates. And we have a way to face the future and death with peace and poise, not with fear or anxiety. You know, as believers, we have an obligation to help non-Christians see that their deepest needs, their deepest longings for these questions are actually echoes in their need for God. And again, as we talked about last week, a lot of times, we're having these conversations with non-believers. 
So we have to have relationships formed with them. Relationships that are formed through, through prayer, through discernment, through how the Spirit can be leading us. And that can be scary. That can be paralyzing to us as we have these conversations because they can get hostile. But in the end, we know that it's worth it because we're following what the Lord is calling us to do. Now, as for the hostilities, I'm not talking about staying in abusive environments. And we have to understand that. We don't want to approach these things like we're just checking it off our list and saying that I'm being persecuted for Christ. We have to explore what good boundaries mean and look like. So today, as we talk about attraction, I want to walk through Acts 17 with you, if you'd like to join me there. Now, in Acts 17, Acts is obviously is the book that details the, the start of the early church, and we're going to find ourselves in the middle of Paul's ministry. And we're going to explore what he's doing to show how God is more attractive than the culture, that the answers that people had already formed in their minds are wrong and that they need to come to the Lord. So similar to last week, um, I'm just going to have us stay seated because we're going to be reading through this chapter in chunks today. So would you pray with me as we begin? Father, I just I pray as we turn to your word, Lord, that you would help us to, to understand um, the, the truths that are hidden within this text and that we can apply it to what we're facing in the real world today dealing with a culture that increasingly does not know you, dealing with a culture that is self-centered and increasingly more hostile towards your ways. So Lord, I just pray for wisdom and discernment as we study your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. <clears throat> All right, so I'm gonna start kind of just reading the first nine verses, then we'll kind of walk through what that says there. Beginning in verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, and did, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down, have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken the money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So looking at the first nine verses here, we're kind of getting a glimpse of the ministry pattern that Paul has to... You know, when, when you understand his style, it kind of starts off where he's going to the synagogue and he's reasoning with the people that are there, okay? He's talking to them 
uh, he's showing them the reason of why Christ needed to be crucified and pointing and proving to them, as the text says, that Jesus is the Christ. So he's proving this matter to Jewish people, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the promised one. And even though he's primarily speaking to the Jews, you also have some devout Greeks that are listening. You also have leading women that are there too. They hear what is being said and they believe as well. You know, what he is presenting to them is attractive. He's drawing them in. And of course, this creates jealousy in the leaders of the Jews. They form up this mob, and they're bringing Jason, uh, the person that's hosting Paul and Silas. They bring him before the city leaders, and, and they're using Paul's own words against them, right? Same thing that, that happened with Jesus. Like, they're, they're over here, they're proclaiming to worship this other king, somebody other than Caesar. So the Jews are again trying to get the Romans to do their dirty work. And the environment is getting hostile. Now, Paul is probably here in Thessalonica for three or four weeks based on what it says that for three Sabbaths he goes in and he reasons with them from Scripture. But then, after that time, he's going to leave. Now we're going to see this in the next section as well. But knowing when to leave can be difficult. Knowing when to move on with ministries. Knowing when to move on to a different workplace, for instance. One thing that will remain constant, though, in Paul's ministry, something that we can emulate is that no matter where he goes, he is preaching the gospel. No matter where you're at in your life, no matter what circles you're running in, what effect does the gospel have in those relationships? How does your faith come into play? He had the expressed purpose to meet the people where they're at. In this section, he is meeting them in the, in the synagogues, and he is sharing with them the good news. You know, he knows the persecution that he's already received. He knows the hostilities that are going to be coming his way, but he fearlessly goes to proclaim in these places, the good news. He proclaims, and some believe. And then he moves on. This is kind of the pattern that he goes to. Now, in some of these places, he might be there for a year or two as he's helping to set up the church. In some of these instances, some of the people that are with him, some of the other brothers, stay behind and they fill in those gaps as he goes and goes to a different area to, again, preach the gospel but he will stay in an area based on the receptivity to the gospel because he knows that he could be used elsewhere. Where the gospel message was central in his ministry. It was something that was, would push him in what he was doing. Let's move on to the next section, verse 10 through 15. It says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds, then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. 
Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come down to him as soon as possible, they departed. So in this section, um, you see the mention of the Bereans, popular saying amongst churches today that we want to be like the Bereans because they examined and studied the scriptures so well. Here it says, many believed, not all, but many, along with this repetition that some of the Greek men and women of high standing also believed. Now, Bria was about 45 miles away from Thessalonica, so maybe a two, three-day journey. Uh, we don't know exactly how long he's here before those from Thessalonica come to stir up trouble against them. And in this instance, Paul and Timothy, or Silas and Timothy would be staying behind and catch up with Paul in Athens later on. And again, it might be tough to know when it's time to go, to know when you need to move on. Um, it's hard, but you have to be ready to be able to sh shake the dust off of your feet and go on to the next area where people can hear the word receptively. You know, I learned very early on in ministry that just because I'm preaching the gospel, not everyone is going to come to a saving knowledge. I learned very quickly that sometimes I might be planting a seed, sometimes I might be watering, and that's okay. I learned very quickly that even though I am preaching the word of God, that there is going to be thorns and thistles that will choke out that word. That sometimes the soil will be rocky, and that's okay. I needed to be faithful to what the Lord had called me to do in those instances, and I would pray. I wouldn't condemn that person if they didn't believe at that time. I would pray for them to, to have other people to come alongside in their life. I would pray for those opportunities or those open doors to continue to be able to share the gospel message in their life. You know, as I, I've been a part of four different churches in some ministry format, and each time that I had left those churches, it's hard because you pour your heart and your soul into those people. And as you leave, you, you pray for people to kind of pick up and, and take on that torch and, and come into those people's lives. And you're trusting the Lord to do some of those things. But as, as the Lord has moved, moved me from church to church, to different forms of ministry, to different forms of work environments, I understand the blessing that has been given to me for those opportunities. Because not everybody can just pick up, move, sell their home, and move to a different state or a different country that the Lord calls them to go to. I understand that. I get the hardships that are with that. But what's key in these difficult situations where maybe we don't know what to do, maybe we don't know what the next step is gonna be, we don't know how to handle a hostile environment, I think that the key is discernment and prayer. Understanding that we need to be in the word to allow the spirit to guide us. Where maybe the battle is in our own thoughts, in our own will. Because again, maybe we wanna stay in this environment because these people are so important to us. We also have one another that we can lean on with prayer, that we can seek wise counsel from on what to do in specific situations. And it's hard because in our own head, we understand that you know, we're doing good things for the Lord, we're doing ministry, so why shouldn't I stay? As you wrestle through that, you have to also wrestle with the question of, is this the best place where God can use me? 
Is this the best place where I can be most effective for the gospel message? And he is faithful. He will give that answer. Maybe not in your timing, but in his. It's our job to continue to walk faithfully in what he has called us to do. And the spirit will guide us as we're pressing into him. You know, obviously, the, the next question that usually comes to people's minds as we're having those types of conversations is, well, how will I know? How will I know when the, when the Spirit is pressing in, when the, when the Spirit's calling me to move? You know, as you are in prayer, as you are in the Word, as we have been given one another, we have all of the resources that are there. Will we believe it? Will we be able to see the open or closed doors? You know, there's so many different seasons that we do walk through in our life. Those of us that are older, if we can look back over the last 20, 30 years, you can see the different things that the Lord has led you through. But just as a warning, many times it is our personalities, many times it is our psychology to stay in a dysfunctional environment because we understand it, because it's familiar. That might not be what the Lord is calling for us to do because there's fear in the unknown. But we need to rely on the fact that the Spirit is guiding us. And this is gonna be a little bit more evident for us in this next section. You know, and up into this point of chapter 17, we're just kind of getting a glimpse of Paul's ministry. Some of the obstacles that he was facing. The next two sections are a little bit more of what I wanna focus on in terms of the time that he spends in Athens. We're going to see the experiences that he has here, the chance that he gets to preach to the Greeks, what he actually says, and then the outcome of that. So I want to look through this next section a little bit more slowly, focusing first just on verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So looking at this first, we see that he's in Athens. This is still a cultural hub of the world. We want to understand that. Even though Rome is now the center, um, philosophy, reason, intellect came out of Athens. You know, and the people would still live this in their culture, even though it's 500 years past their prime. But as he, as he understands that these people still love to reason, they love to debate different ideas, as he is there, his spirit is provoking him because of all of the idolatry. Now, as you would go into Athens in this time, you would have all kinds of temples, you would have all kinds of statues where people are worshiping. There would be devout, God-fearing people, I say God, lowercase g, God-fearing people that would be offering sacrifices daily in these temples. You would have many statues that were dedicated to these people. You know, some of those statues are still there today, and, and they're seen in a very artistic or architectural type of way where we're marveling at, at that type of beauty. But in Paul's day, this was complete idolatry where people are worshiping these things. This was the intellectual capital of the world and it produced nothing but idols. And perhaps you can make some of these connections to our own culture in this verse where the question is, are we provoked by the idolatry in our own culture. 
Is our spirit so disturbed within us at the idolatry in our country? What about our own homes? We talked the first week when we started this cultural talk about technology, about phones, about screens, about the shiny things that are all around us. Do our spirits get just as disturbed? Or is it okay because it's, it's us? It's just what we want. But this provoked him. The spirit stirred within him. He is greatly distressed, burdened, upset. So he begins to address it. Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now, again, the devout persons, these would be God-fearing Greeks, not for the Christian God, but just more religious-minded people. The marketplace is known as the Agora. This is where this, the life of the city could be found. You know, you had all kinds of marketplaces, and this is where you would go to debate your ideas. This would be like a soapbox mentality where you would get up and you would just begin to have a classical, formal debate with people right then and there, right out in the public where everybody could see. Uh, Moving on to verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now the Epicureans, they were disciples of Epicurus who lived from 341 to 270 BC. Um, He thought that, or believed, that pleasure was the greatest good and it was with the most worthy pursuit of man. Um, they meant pleasure in the sense of tranquility and freedom from pain, disquieting passions and fears, especially the fear of death. Epicurus taught that the gods took no interest in human affairs, um, so reli- organized religion was bad. Uh, he, they also believed that the gods would not punish evildoers in the afterlife. In a sense, they were modern atheists in terms of their views of God. Stoics followed the teaching of Zeno the Cypriot. The name Stoic comes from the name of the portico that he would teach in Athens. And his followers placed more of a greater importance on living in harmony with nature. They stressed individual self-sufficiency and rationalism. They had a reputation for being very arrogant. Stoics were more pantheists in their beliefs to believe that God is in everything and everything is God. Um, They were also very fatalistic in their views. You see a lot of the the teachings being common today from the poem Invictus by Henley. He says, I am the master of my fate and the captain of my soul. Maybe you've heard of that quote, but it's a very famous quote that kind of teaches the Stoic ideology. Um, But this kind of describes some of the people that are around Paul as he is giving this message, as he's preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. And you see their response. What does this babbler wish to say? Right? He seems to be talking about some foreign divinities. So you can see kind of the response right away as he starts. Let's continue on. Verse 19. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. 
For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing of something new. So the desire that they have is to hear something new. The desire that they have is to get their ears tickled because they wanted to gain knowledge. Now, I would, I would say that the attitudes of the Stoics or the Epicureans could still be seen in our culture today. Something for us to contend with, something f- perhaps for us to be uh, warned against in terms of the temptations in our own life. But I would say that there is a big difference from what's written here and what we find today. See, people don't really care too much about knowledge. They want to hear what they want to hear. They don't want to be challenged directly about what they believe in rational or wise ways. You know, people here in Athens, they're clamoring over the fact that this was new, that they were going to be on the cutting edge of this new trend or this new fad. That was the in thing to be back then. They pursued wisdom. They pursued that knowledge. As we talked about before, people aren't really pursuing too much of anything when it comes to truth or wisdom these days. Again, we, we, we do what we're told, we listen to what the media gives us, and that's what we tend to believe. There isn't that pursuit, there isn't that seeking of wisdom that the Bible calls us to frequently. Now let's read section 22 through 34. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who has made the world and everything in it, being Lord of the heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all or gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of you of your own poets have said, for we indeed, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art of imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Aeropagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them.
So what we see here is Paul being relevant. He's using their own poets. He's talking about their culture, about their religious practices. He addresses the answers that they have for meaning, for satisfaction, for identity, and he flips it on its head because he points them to the one true God, their creator. He is the one who gives them their identity and purpose. Did you catch that in terms of what he says that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him? He then goes on and give, gives them hope that he is not far from them. You know, in their ignorance beforehand, that has been overlooked. But now that Paul is here and that the gospel message is presented, they can no longer be ignorant. They must repent and believe because judgment is going to be coming. To avoid that judgment, they have to believe in the one named Jesus who was raised from the dead. See, Paul uses the time that he has, he looks at the environment that he finds himself and he sees this as an opportunity to share the gospel, to help draw people in because it is the gospel that is attractive. Not Paul, not the synagogues, not the temples, but the gospel. Again, taking everything back to God. Paul is simply doing the ministry that he has been given. I relate this to Ezekiel 3, when the prophet is given this word from the Lord. In chapter 3, verse 16, he begins, And at the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Wherever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have, been, you will have delivered your soul. Again, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because you have not warned him, he shall die for his sin, and his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered. But his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took the warning, and you will have delivered your soul." As a minister, as somebody who proclaims the word of God, Paul took this very seriously. He continues into chapter 18. You know, he's now going to be in Corinth, and he's going to face a lot of hostilities in Corinth. But he continues to follow the Lord in the same way. I just want to briefly look at, um, starting in verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, 
and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So Paul gives the message that the Lord puts on his heart. And it is the gospel message. It is the same message that we have been given as well to share with people who are broken, who are seeking pleasure, who are self-centered, who are looking for identity and questioning it at every turn. People who are ignorant, people who are shallow, people who are prideful. They have answers to life's questions that are not true or sufficient and they're stuck in these patterns of hopelessness and loneliness. God is increasingly more and more unknown to them. And we, who are his ambassadors, who are his messengers, are tasked to go into the marketplaces, into the agoras, into the synagogues, into the centers of the culture to proclaim his good news, the truth. Now one thing that we also need to take note of, back up in 17, is looking at the results. Some of the people mock him. Some of the people want to hear more. And some believe. This shows us that the results are individualized and mixed. We have to understand that Paul is going to face these hostilities head on. And he is going to be consistent in how he gives the gospel message. You know, he understands just as Jesus says in John 15 that the world is going to hate you. We can't go into these conversations thinking that we're the best thing since sliced bread. The message is we are not. The focus is on God's word, not us. Our styles, our delivery, they can always improve. How we rely on the spirit, how, how we go in boldness can change from season to season. But we have to go into these places expecting to be mocked while at the same time expecting that the Spirit can draw at least one to himself. And that's why we do it. Our faith and how we present it, how we live it out, is an attraction. Because what we live out is the gospel message, and that is what is attractive. We have the message of hope for a hurting, confused, and lost generation. And that needs to be lived out in our words and our actions. You know, you think back to the time that you became a believer. What was it about the gospel message? What was it around that whole time that attracted to you, you to God? What was it that drew you in? Now, I think that this is perhaps the, a, a right time to address uh, religious things that can be attractive. Or maybe it was a preacher who had this awesome humor and wit these deliveries that were great. Maybe it was a worship band. Maybe it was the good coffee, the fellowship, a sense of belonging to a club. Maybe it was tradition, just going to church on Sundays. Or maybe there wasn't this focus of the gospel message in your heart. While these religious things can be good, they're not what saves you. The attraction must be found in God. The attraction must confront the fact that we are all sinners in need of a savior. And that without the grace of God who sent Jesus to die in our place, we'd be eternally separated from him still stuck in our sins. For the punishment of sin is death. The, the attraction of the gospel message is that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, 
he promises us eternal life. He promises that our sins are paid through the grace of God. We simply believe in him and what he has done. That is what's attractive. And it might seem too good to be true, but we have faith in what his word says. We have faith in who he is, and we share that faith with others as we share the gospel message, as we live for him each and every day. Dangerous question. What is attractive about you? When we hear that question, maybe you fall back to the cultural standards, the way you look, your wealth, your humor, your personality. What about your faith? My prayer for you this week is to wrestle with the answers that you have in your head. What are you actually living out? Is it centered in the gospel message? My prayer for us this week is that we can lean into the spirit and to the word to discern where the Lord is calling us to be most effective for him. And that might not be comfortable for you. But know that people here can be praying with you, alongside of you. Because we want to rest in his truth as we seek him. Because we have too important of a task to take the gospel message to the ends of the world. Let's pray. Father, as we continue to wrestle with the things of this culture and what they are saying and how they are countering what your word says, Lord, I just pray that we can spend time in your word, that we can know truthfully and honestly, wholeheartedly, what your word says. And Lord, I pray that we can live it that we too aren't distracted by the idols in life, in culture, in our communities. But Lord, that the gospel is, is central to the things that we say and the things that we do. Lord, I pray that our faith can be seen clearly by those that we come in contact with. That the non-believers around us will be attracted to you Lord, may we be your hands and feet. May, may the things that we say be guided by you. Lord, I pray for forgiveness in those times that we have failed to live up to your standards, those times that we continue to try to go our own way and do what we want to do because it's comfortable, because it's pleasurable. Those times that we're seeking pleasure instead of your ways. Those times that maybe we're being arrogant and stoic rather than kind and gentle. Lord, I pray for those in our life that are lost and don't know you. I pray for opportunities for each one of us to be able to share the gospel message. Lord, give us a, a renewed sense of what the gospel message means in our life. Because if it doesn't matter to us, why, how are we going to convince others that it should matter to them? 
Lord, each day we should be so thankful for the grace that we have received. Exalting the name of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.